Now, I've told you in past studies that the book of Genesis answers the big picture questions of life. As a matter of fact, the book of Genesis answers the big picture questions of life in the first three chapters. I mean, the first three chapters really explains everything when it comes to understanding life. For example, the book of Genesis answers these questions. Is there a God? What is God like? Where do we come from? Who are we? Why are we here? What went wrong? How do we fix it? All of that is answered in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. So just kind of real quick recap tonight. Uh, is there a God? Yes, we talked a lot about the existence of God, the, the reality of God, and God creating the heavens and the earth. Uh, what is God like? What is God like? Holy? Perfect? That's right. What else? What's that? Sovereign? Just powerful, right? He created everything, everything out of nothing. He just spoke and everything came into existence. He's triune, right? We talk about the Trinity. One God existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You see traces of the doctrine of the Trinity in the first chapter, really the first verse of Genesis chapter 1. And so we answer the question, what is God like? And, and the Bible gives us a picture of what God is like. Uh, where do we come from? Big picture question. People wonder, where do we come from? Answer? God created us, right? We're here because God created us. He started with Adam and Eve, and we all descend from Adam and Eve. Which, by the way, just kind of a quick word. I didn't get into this when I preached on it. But if that's true, if we all can trace our, our lineage back to Adam and Eve, racism is just silly. Right? Because we all go back to Adam and Eve. And to, to dislike somebody because of their ethnic background or their racial background or they're different, look different than you or talk different than you, that's silly. You all go back to Adam and Eve. All of us. So that's just, that was extra tonight, okay? Hope that blessed you. Um, who are we? We're created by God and we're created in God's image. Remember that? We're created in God's image. We talked about what it means to be created in the image of God. Um, why are we here? Anyone remember why we're here? Why are we? People are wondering. Out of this entire, you know, universe, there's this one planet that sustains life, and we're on it. Why are we here? What's the answer? Glorify God, relationship with God, to exercise dominion over the earth that God has given us. Right to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those are all answers the Bible gives us as to why we are here. What went wrong? We, if, just look around. You know something went wrong, right? There's evil. There are wars. What went wrong? Sin. And, and when did sin come into the picture? Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve. Satan tempted Eve. She ate the fruit. She handed it to Adam. Adam ate the fruit. And, and when sin entered the world, the world became cursed by sin. Humanity became infected by sin and everything went haywire. So we're going to talk about that a lot tonight. And, and how do we fix it? Big picture question. Everybody know, everyone, listen, everyone knows something's wrong. And, and there are different answers as to how you fix it. Different world religions say you fix it like this, you do this, you do that. But how does the Bible say we fix things? We don't. Who fixes things? God. God has the only solution to our brokenness. And his solution is a savior. And way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see the first prophecy that God was going to send a savior, the seed of the woman, that would crush the head of the serpent. That's good stuff, isn't it? So even in, in the, the first three chapters of Genesis, we see all of these questions answered, and life begins to make sense. When you look at life through these lenses, life begins to make sense, and you know why you're here, what your purpose is, and, and, and what life is all about. Well, we want to pick up where we left off. We, we studied in depth last week how the fall occurred, the, the first sin of Eve and Adam and the, the aftermath of that. Now we're going to see the rest of the story. We're going to see how Adam and Eve experienced paradise lost. They were in paradise, this, this garden in Eden, and they lost it. And so I want to talk about uh, three things. I want to talk about the fall and, and the 
the effects of the fall in different areas. And, and we see it begin to unfold at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. So, first, let's talk about the devastation of the fall. The devastation of the fall. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and experienced the devastating consequences of the fall. That's what chapter 3 is about. They disobeyed God and experienced the devastating consequences of the fall. Now remember, Satan promised them uh, big things if they would sin. You'll be like God, right? No limits. Things will go great for you if you will eat this fruit. But here's what Victor Hamilton writes. Alas, rather than experiencing bliss, they encounter misery. Rather than sitting on a throne, they are expelled from the garden. Rather than new prerogatives, they experience only a reversal. The couple not only fail to gain something they do not presently have, the irony is that they lose what they currently possess, unsullied fellowship with God. They found nothing and lost everything. And that last sentence is a great description of what sin gives you. If you try to find life by committing sin, by rebelling against God, you will find nothing. And not only will you find nothing, you'll lose everything. You remember what I said last week? Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that's what Adam and Eve are experiencing here in Genesis chapter 3. The devastating consequences of the fall. And we are still dealing with and living under the consequences of the fall thousands of years later. Now let's get a little more specific Adam and Eve were forced to leave the paradise of the Garden of Eden. Look what it says there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord God said, we didn't get to this last week. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. He'd experienced good and, uh, and he had experienced evil. Unlike God, he had actually done something evil. Adam and Eve had. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. Now, if you remember last week, uh, when we looked at verse 20, where it says, The man called his wife's name Eve, which means uh, one that gives life. Uh, we, we said that's uh, an, a statement of, of Adam's faith in what God had promised uh, he and Eve would become. And so I believe by that that Adam believed God and what he said in the garden. And I believe Adam was redeemed. And I believe we'll see Adam in heaven. And, and he's exercising his faith by naming uh, his wife Eve. And so the question comes, and someone asked me about this last week, well, if they were redeemed, why are they kicked out of the garden? Why did he kick them out of that paradise? Why did they lose paradise? Well, let me give you three answers to that question. Why were they kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Number one, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. There in verse 22, it says, Behold, the Lord God saying this, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also uh, take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, that's not how it works. Because of sin, you don't live forever. Because of sin, you must face death. The wages of sin is death. And I believe that the Lord intended for Adam and Eve to experience this consequence and all of humanity to experience this consequence to show them uh, the effects of sin, the wages of sin, so they would see their need for a Savior. Because you've noticed since Adam and Eve, everybody just keeps on dying, right? One out of one die. Right? We hadn't figured that one out. You hadn't figured out how to get around death. And the reason we die is because of the fall. The wages of sin is death. Now, the Bible not only talks about physical death, it also talks about spiritual death. The, the Bible calls it in Revelation the second death, which is eternal separation from God. Now, I believe that Adam experienced the first death. He and, he and Eve died, physically died and were buried. But I believe he was saved and not experience the second death. I believe he went to heaven with the Lord after he died. But if you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior and you die here on this earth, you will experience a second death, which is eternal separation in that awful place called hell. But Adam and Eve had to experience that 
that verse, the wages of sin is death. Because they sinned, they had to die. They were not allowed to eat of the tree of life and live forever. All right, that's one answer. There's a quote there from D.A. Carson you can read uh, in your own time. It's, it's helpful. Secondly, if they would have eaten of the tree of life in their present sinful state, their fallen, cursed state, sin had infected their life. They had a sin nature now. If they would have eaten of the tree of life in their present sinful state, they would have remained in that state forever. Look what it says in verse 22 of chapter 3. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God did not want him to do this. God was, was insistent that, that Adam and Eve be kicked out of the garden so they could not eat the tree in their condition and live in that condition. So wait, what, what, are, what are you saying here? Well, listen, all of us have a sin nature. We were born with it, right? It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And the only way to be rid of our sin nature, listen is to experience redemption, to be saved, have our sins forgiven, to experience the first death, to die you know, here on this earth, and then to be resurrected. That's, that's the way you experience freedom from our sin-cursed bodies. Hold your place there. Turn to Romans with me. Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Paul here is talking about living with a sin nature and how difficult it is to live with a sin nature. He says there, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my, the, my members another law waging war against the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. A little bit earlier in this passage, Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Anyone ever found yourself there? You find yourself doing something you don't want to do, you didn't intend to do, you know it's wrong, but you find yourself doing it, and then there's things that, that you want to do, but you never get around to it. That's because of the struggle, the inner battle of your new, your new, the new you with the old you, the, the spirit with the flesh. So look what he says. In verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So Paul's saying, Jesus is going to deliver me from this sin nature that I possess. There's going to come a time, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried. But one day, Jesus is going to come back for me. And when he raises my body, it's not going to be my old body. It's going to be a brand new body, a glorified body, a perfect body. And I'll be in that body forever and ever and ever in that wonderful place called heaven, free from my old sin nature. Everybody see that? That's how you experience freedom. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ and your death, burial, and resurrection by Christ. So, listen, if Adam and Eve would have eaten that tree of life, with their current sin nature condition, they would have been in that condition forever. They never would have been set free from their old sin nature. Interesting, isn't it? And so God here is really showing them grace to not allow them to eat of that tree and live forever with a sin nature. One day, we're going to be set free from these old bodies of sin, aren't we? When we get to heaven, the Bible says, we'll see Jesus, we'll be like Jesus. In other words, we'll be in a state of perfection. Our bodies will be perfect, no sin nature. There'll no longer be a struggle. No, no longer this inner turmoil. No longer will we not do the things we want to do. When we do the things we don't want to do, we will live in perfect fellowship and communion with the Lord. Pretty awesome, right? But Adam and Eve had to experience death, and one day they're going to experience resurrection to get to that point of freedom. They would have eaten the tree of life. They never would have experienced being free from their sin nature. Interesting, isn't it? Food for thought. There's a quote here that, uh, that undergirds this idea. James Montgomery Boyce, great Presbyterian preacher, he writes, In this case, it was an eternal prolongation of life in its sinful state. However, it might actually have been communicated. If Adam and Eve had been allowed to live forever, they would have lived as sinners. They were to be set free from sin only by literal death and resurrection. Pretty interesting stuff. Let me give you a third reason that they could not eat of the tree of life. Apparently, there's this tree in the garden. If you ate from it, you live forever. You, immortality. You would not face death. Listen to me. 
He kicked them out of the garden because their way of relation, that way of relationship with God was closed forever. Look what it says back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. It says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so Adam and Eve are... Uh, expelled from the Garden of Eden. That kind of relationship, that way of relationship with God was over. Now think about this. Adam and Eve had it made. Right? They were living in paradise. Animals, trees, communion with God. They get to walk with God and talk with God. I mean, they had a, a... a great relationship with each other. Sin had not entered the world yet. I mean, can you imagine how good your relationships with others would be if there were no sin, right? We didn't have our sin nature to struggle with. They didn't have that sin. They were living in a, a perfect state, enjoying each other, enjoying creation, enjoying paradise, enjoying God. They had it made, but when they sinned, all that had to change. And God said, no longer will you relate to me this way. This, this, this thing called paradise is over for you. You're out of here put a cherubim over the, uh, the gate so that they could not come back. That way of relationship, living in the Garden of Eden, was closed forever. Now, kind of quick side, just kind of put that on the shelf for a minute, think with me for a moment. Where's the Garden of Eden today? I mean, there, are some, there, are, there is some information here about kind of where it was in the Middle East, and it mentions the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and why have we not been able to find the Garden of Eden? Answer, the flood. The flood destroyed the Garden of Eden. So, of course, you can't find the Garden of Eden. I mean, think the entire earth was flooded. And so, there is no Garden of Eden like there was back in this day. And that way of relating to God was over. Sin had ruined paradise. But listen to me. You say, if if that's closed, paradise, Garden of Eden, walking with God, relationship with God, then then how how do we get to God now? Well, i got some really good news for you. Ready? There's a new way. That way's closed. Adam and Eve can never go back in the garden. But God had a new way. He inaugurated a new way that people could get to him. And, and here's how Jesus described it in John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus is the way now, Right? There's no going back to the garden. They were kicked out. There's a cherubim protecting the, the gate. But there's a, there is a way to God, and the way is through Jesus Christ. Over in Hebrews 10, 19-22, it talks about Jesus inaugurating a, a new and living way into the presence of God. I love this quote from Alan Ross. He writes, The human race, of course, lives on in the present evil world, and so the curse remains in effect. But for the believer, Israelite or New Testament Christian, there are better prospects. The sting of the curse has been removed in view of the glorious prospects that lie ahead. There's no going back to the garden. The only way now is on to glory to join the last Adam, that's Jesus, who died as the curse for the human race and changed death into life through his resurrection from the dead. There's no going back to the garden of Eden, but we get to go to glory, we get to go to heaven through Jesus Christ. And that's better, right? Heaven is going to be better. Jesus is the way. Now, here's what's really interesting. At the end of Revelation, book of Revelation, it mentions heaven and the new heaven and the new earth coming down and, and what that's all going to be about. You know, the, the lamb will, will be the light of the city. There will be no need for the sun anymore because the glory of the Lord will, will illuminate everything and, and, and people will be coming and going in that city and serving the Lord. It's just going to be an incredible reality. Such beauty and splendor and grandeur. And we get to be there in the presence of Jesus. And it says there, the end of Revelation, that there's going to be a tree of life that we get to eat from freely, which means immortality. We get to be in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. We will eat from that tree of life. And so here in Genesis 3, they were barred from the tree of life. But if you know Jesus, you will have unfettered access to the tree of life in heaven. And you know why? Because of another tree of life called Calvary. Calvary. 
Jesus died on a tree so that you could, you could have a way to get to glory and be with the Lord. Isn't that good stuff? Grateful tonight for Calvary. So that gives you a little bit of insight as to why they were kicked out of the garden, why they, why they had to leave. I think all these things play into that. But now we want to look at chapter 4. We've talked about the devastation of the fall, getting kicked out of the garden. But I want to talk just for a moment about the deterioration of the fall. Deterioration of the fall. Things began to rapidly deteriorate as sin made its way through the human race. Because remember, when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, everyone that was born from that point was born with a sin nature, including you, including me. All right, We're all born with a sin nature. Only one that was born without a sin nature was Jesus Christ because he didn't have a human dad. He was conceived in the, the, the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Spirit. But all of us were born uh, by, uh, by virtue of having a, a biological mom, biological dad, and we were all born with a sin nature. Because that sin nature, you know what we do? We sin, right? We sin. We, we live in brokenness. We mess things up, okay? And, and th- th- these are all effects that can be traced back to the fall. And so when we start chapter 4, we start to see the increasing grip of sin on humanity. Humanity is like a python. You know, I'm from uh, Florida, and in South Florida, where the Everglades are, is having a real problem with uh, infestation of exotic snakes, boa constrictors and pythons, because people get them as pets. I don't, I don't know why anybody would want to do that. And if you have a pet snake, bless you. But I wouldn't. And, and so they had these snakes, and they get too big. And so you know what they do? They go and drop them off into the Everglades. And the Everglades habitat is perfect for these kind of snakes. It's you know, a lot of marshy-type uh, uh, area, you know, grass and water, and they're and they're and they're really affecting the other indigenous species. You know, white-tailed deer, and they're even uh, killing off the gator uh, population. I mean, it's just it's just really throwing things in a turmoil down there in South Florida. And you know, you know the way a, a python or a boa constrictor works. When they capture their prey, they wrap around, and every time the animal tries to take a breath and breathes in, they tighten up. They try to breathe in a little bit more, and it tightens up until the the animal or the person is is suffocated. And that's what's happening here in, in Genesis chapter 4. Sin is tightening up around humanity. And, and it's just, its grip is getting greater and greater and greater. And we're going to see the devastating, deteriorating effects of sin. Now, before we get to that, we see something interesting. We see the achievements of humanity in chapter 4. Humanity starts to achieve some things, and, it, and it's kind of interesting to see. Well, what kind of achievements do we see? Well, first of all, we see city building. Look in chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. I know we're skipping a large passage, but we'll get back to it in a moment. The Bible says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujiel, and Mahujiel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. But notice there it says that he built a city and named the city after his son uh, Enoch, and so we see here that that man just just begins to begins to build, builds a city. I mean, they begin to congregate as as the population as the population spreads. Now, there might be some some question here. Wait, how was there? How were there enough people to start having cities? Because all you had was Adam and Eve. They had Cain and Abel, and and, and we'll talk about that in a, in a moment. And and they had some other sons over here. But I mean, is there enough population here? I mean, what's going on here to be able to to grow this point? Well. Just think about it. Uh, if, if, if you have children and your children have children and your children should have children, just over three generations, the population can grow rapidly. For example, uh, my, my wife is the oldest of four children. It's, it's, she's the oldest and there, she has three brothers. Now listen to this. Between uh, last weekend, her uh, younger brother had a baby girl, their first baby. Uh, so that was in uh, April. And so from April to October, all four of the of the kids are having babies. And so they went from four grandchildren and he doubled it over a period of just months. <laughs> right? Happens quickly. And we're contributing to that as well. If you haven't heard we're having a boy. Having a having having a third boy. Excited about that. And so uh and so 
what we see here is population is, is rapidly growing and they're, they're building cities, they're, they're congregating. You know, it, it's just, it was a, a natural step for, for humanity to you know, build a place to congregate, a place to, you know, a marketplace, a, a place to transact business, a place to govern. They began to build cities. And it's really remarkable uh, the, the ingenuity of mankind to be able to build the, the type of cities we have. Uh, I tell you, I, I love... I love going to the major cities. There's just an excitement in the air when you're going into, you know, a New York or uh, a, a Paris, France, or the, you know, these major cities. I mean, it's just incredible the infrastructure and and the people and the diversity and the food, and it's just incredible what humanity is capable of. And we see it starting here in chapter four, city building. Secondly, uh, we see them achieving herding. Look in verse twenty, verse twenty of chapter four. It's going through the genealogy from Cain. It says, Adda bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And so we see here, they're figuring out how to, how to exercise dominion over livestock, how to raise them and keep them safe and, and use them as food and for other things. They're, they're figuring this out. They see some achievement here. They're figuring out how to, how to cultivate livestock and, and, and earn a living by watching over and exercising, exercising dominion over livestock. Third, we see them achieve music. Look in verse 21. Verse 21. It said, his, his brother's name was Joey. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. This kid doesn't say Joey. He says Jubal. That was a joke. I wonder if you were... Were y'all listening? Did y'all get that? Okay. Joey's our worship pastor. That was, okay. I thought it was funny. His brother's name was Jubal, Ada's brother. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. And so we see here, he, he's, he has a musical bent. And we see here, humans producing music together and instruments to play music. And they're, they're achieving uh, some, some, some advancements in metalwork. Look what it says in verse 22. It says, Zilla also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Uh, and so we see there that they're learning how to how to manipulate uh, metals to make instruments and to do work. And so we see here that, that humanity is making some strides. They're, they're making some advancements. But here's what I want you to understand. Don't miss this. We should not be fooled by human advancement. Don't be fuel, uh, fooled by human advancement. Say, wait. They, they, these are sinners. They had rebelled against God. They had sin natures. Why are they advancing? Well, look there in your notes. Human advancement is possible because we are made in the image of God. You remember what I said when we talked about the image of God? One of the aspects of being made in the image of God is we have creativity. We have the ability to create. Just like God is a creative God, because we are made in His image, we have the ability to invent and create. That's because we're made in God's image. Whether you've been saved or not saved, you're still made in the image of God, right? And because of that, you have that creative ability. The, the reason we have a patent office where inventors take their, their devices to, 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 to get them patented is because humanity creates. The reason we have cities and the reason we have art and all of these things is because man has the ability to create. Human advancement is possible because we are made in the image of God. And God gives common grace to all. Even folks that aren't saved, they experience the, the goodness of God. He gives them life, right? Over in Matthew it says that God causes his rain to fall on the righteous and unrighteous. Right? It was a beautiful day out today, right? I got to experience the beauty of this day. So did someone that is far from God, that doesn't know Jesus. They got to experience it as well, right? Common grace. And so, because of God's common grace, because of the image of God that we all possess, we, we are able to advance and achieve some things. And if you think about what mankind has achieved, it's breathtaking, is it not? Uh, Claire and I were you know, doing some ministry up in South Dakota a couple of weekends ago, and we got to go to Mount Rushmore. I've always wanted to go. That's a bucket list item for me. Another one is I want to go to the Masters in Augusta. If anybody has a hook up there, let me know. But we made it to Mount Rushmore, and... And it's just, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, what, what they were able to figure out with dynamite and placing it, and, and it was just amazing what they were able to do to, to, to make these faces come out of that, that rock face. And, 
And it's just fascinating. All, you know, we've gone to the moon, right? I mean, think about that. We've gone to the moon. Just, it's just amazing. When, when, I, when I fly on a plane, I'm thinking, how do we figure this out? I mean, this pl- plane is so heavy, and now we're 30,000 feet up in the air. I mean, wow, right? I mean, we have figured some stuff out because we're made in the image of God. And because God gives us common grace. But listen to this next sentence, and this is so important. Human advancement has the tendency to move people away from dependence upon God. Every time humanity makes strides, it fuels our self-dependence. And makes us think we can figure things out without God. And if you look at the modern, or the, the major, um, major periods of human advancement, you can almost see humans taking a step away from God. You get to the Enlightenment, where humanity's learning, and, and this period of, of great learning and, 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 and advancements in all these different areas, and the Enlightenment caused a lot of people to say, you know what, we figure some things out on our own. I don't think we need God as much as we used to. And people began to walk away from God, and you get to the Industrial Revolution, an amazing time in history uh, that changed the face of our nation and the face face of the world. But with that Industrial Revolution came this self-sufficiency, this productivity. We're going to focus on wealth building and producing and and, and all of this, and, and we don't need God. And as, as, as a nation makes strides, as it advances, you can see the spiritual condition deteriorating. And that's what's happening here in chapter 4. There, there's these two things happening. They're advancing, they're figuring out some things because they're made in the image of God. But at the same time, though they are outwardly advancing, inwardly they're decaying. Sin is having its way. And so don't be fooled by human advancement. Don't... don't don't think that because we figured some things out by God's grace that we don't need God. A lot of people think that, right? We can go to the moon. We don't need God. We, you know, I've got, my, I've got my job, my account. I don't need God. Don't be fooled. No human achievement can meet our deepest need, which is salvation from sin. No human achievement can meet our deepest need, which is salvation from sin. So notice here the disintegration of sin. So they're, they're achieving, but they're decaying at the same time, right? A nation can be a great nation and achieve and, and be powerful, but decay at the same time. What's happening here? Well, let me just show you three manifestations of this disintegration. First of all, anger. All of a sudden, sin enters the world... People are born with a sin nature, and all of a sudden, anger shows up. Look what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. By the way, if you have questions now, just jot them down. We'll have some time for Q&A at the end. So if you have a question you want to ask, then jot it down, and, and we'll discuss at the end. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very, what? Angry, and his face fell. Anger. Now, what's going on here? Cain and Abel both bring an offering. God accepts Abel's offering. But he does not accept Cain's offering. What's going on here? Now, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, speculation as to why God accepted one and not the other. Uh, some people believe that because Abel brought the firstborn of the flock, that it was a blood sacrifice, which pointed to the ultimate blood sacrifice of Jesus. And so that's why he accepted his offering and not Abel's offering. Uh, I don't, I, it doesn't say that. It's, it's an interesting point. There were other type of offerings in the law other than blood sacrifice offerings. There were wave offerings and bread offerings. And so there were other type of offerings other than blood sacrifice. And so you can't, can't say that for sure. But it's an interesting thought. Some people think that, that Abel's offering was, was the best he could give. And perhaps Cain's offering was not his best. Maybe it was his leftovers. And he did not bring his best to, to worship God. But, but I think what's going on here, I think the reason 
that God accepts Abel's offering but not Cain's is because of the condition of their hearts. Let me show you this. This is interesting. Look what it says uh, in verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. You want to see that? Regard for Abel and his offering. So it wasn't just the offering that Abel brought. It was the condition of his heart. God knew his heart was, was right. It was focused upon the Lord. He, he was coming with wholehearted devotion. Look what it says about Cain. It says in verse 4, but for, uh, verse 5, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Not only did he have no regard for Cain's offering, he had no regard for Cain. He saw something in Cain's life that was not right. Did you know that it's possible to honor God with your lips or to honor God with outward displays of religion while your heart is far from God? Did you know that? Possible. And and that was one of God's major indictments of the Israelites. He says in Isaiah, you honor me with your lips, your hearts are far from me. It's possible to come to church. It's possible to go to connect group. It's possible to be active. And your heart be far, far from God. So I believe that the reason God accepts Abel's but not Cain's is because of the condition of their heart. One came with wholehearted devotion and worship. One came with, with, with a heart that was not in love with the Lord. His heart was far from God. But look at, look at Cain's response. When he sees that God accepts Abel's offering but not his own, it says, He was very angry and his face fell. Question, who's he angry at? Who made the decision to not accept the offering? Who? God. So he's angry at his brother. He's jealous, which spurs on his anger. And he's angry at God. I mean, there's no other other explanation. He's angry. He calls into question the character of God. And listen to me. If you don't get a hold of anger, anger will eventually... uh, manifests itself in other ways in your life because next we see murder. Anger leads to murder. Look what it says in verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. Now, I love what God does here. God warns Cain. Cain, you're getting mighty close to doing something really, really terrible. Sin is crouching at your door. If you don't get a hold of your heart, if you don't get a hold of your jealousy, if you don't get a hold of your anger, it's not going to turn out very pretty. And it didn't. Look at the next verse. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and what? Killed him. Murder. Listen, we're only one generation away from Adam and Eve, Right? These are their first sons. That's what sin does. It deteriorates. It destroys quickly. Cain kills Abel. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know him. Am I my brother's keeper? He's just being a smart aleck. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so Cain knows he's blown it. He knows that if he has to leave his his family and his comfortable surroundings, he would be a fugitive and be in danger. His life would be in danger. Uh, And so God puts a mark on on, on him called the mark of Cain. And again... There's great speculation about what that mark was. And let me tell you what it was. We have no idea. So if anyone tells you they have an idea, they're lying to you. 
Okay? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Now, it's, it's interesting to speculate, okay? It's okay to talk about what you think it might be, but there's no way we can know what the mark was. I've heard some people surmise it was the mark of the cross, perhaps, or, or some kind of mark on his head to, to, to cover him, and so people should know that you don't, you don't touch him. But we don't know. God gives a mark as an act of mercy and grace. But do you see the murder? Just one generation. This is what sin nature does. Jealousy, anger, anger that's not resolved, leads to murder. And then third, we see here in chapter 4, a move away from God's original design for marriage. Look in verse 19. We see in the lineage of Cain that Lamech was born to Methusiel. And it says Lamech had how many wives? Where'd that come from? You know where it comes from? Man's sin nature. God told us in the garden how it was supposed to go, right? God will bring together a man and a woman. The man will leave his mother's father and cleave to his wife, right? God told us what marriage is to be about. One man, one woman, uh, until death should part them. But here, all of a sudden, we see uh, a man with two wives. This is depravity, and we're going to see this all throughout the Bible. Listen to me. When the Bible describes polygamy or bigamy in this case, it does, not, it does not instruct us to practice it. It's simply telling us what happened. And not only does it tell us what happened, it tells us the gory details of how things turn out. If you, as we walk our way through Genesis, we're going to see different instances of polygamy and, and the, just the great heartache, the great problems that it caused. And so this is a, a twisting of God's original design for marriage. And look how quick it happens. Just a few generations from Adam and Eve, they're already twisting God's intention for marriage. And, and isn't it interesting that our society today is still twisting God's intention for marriage? It's under attack. Now, these are just three things in chapter 4. We're going to see a lot more in the coming chapters. As a matter of fact, things get so bad, God floods the earth. <laughs> That's how bad it gets. And, and we're going to see... The remainder of the book of Genesis, we're going to see the, the effects, the disintegration of sin, the, the family trouble, the family turmoil, the, the family dysfunction, the societal dysfunction, all that sin causes, the deterioration of the fall. All right, now one more thing, and, and we're, we'll close down, and then I'll, have a, I'll give you an opportunity to ask questions. I want you to see that as we read about the devastation of the fall and the deterioration of the fall, we do see here, by God's grace, the the development of God's plan. In the midst of a sin-cursed world, we see bright lights of hope. Even here in Genesis, bright lights of hope. And, And if we look around in today's world, and it's dark out there, right? Times are evil. Times are evil. I shudder at the world my kids are going to grow up in. Things are disintegrating quickly in our culture, in our society. Times are, they're they're evil. But God always has his bright lights of hope. And we see this here in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis, we see humanity running away from God, but we also see a line of faithful worshipers that are running to God. Isn't that good? And listen, I've got some good news for you tonight. Everybody else in your family or in your workplace or in your neighborhood or in your nation may choose to run away from God, but you have the opportunity in the midst of a decaying culture to run to God. Isn't that good? And you can be a bright light of hope in the midst of an evil society. We see this in Abel's life. He brings an offering, and God has regard for Abel and his offering. He's a worshiper of God. God accepts his offering. We see this in the line of Seth. Look at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 25. Cain killed Abel, and we see some information about his lineage. But in verse 25 it says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name, what? Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. The, the word Seth it comes from a Hebrew word that 
that sounds like the word appointed. He's appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. So God's given me Seth to replace Abel is in effect what she's saying. For Cain killed him. Now to Seth also was a son born. He called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we see the line of Cain, trouble, disintegration, anger, wrath, murder, twisting God's intention for marriage and all kinds of other things. But then we see this other line from Adam and Eve, this line of Seth. And what happens here? People began to call on the Lord. There's a a remnant of, of faithful followers here that trust God and believe God and obey God and worship God. Now it's interesting to note that when God floods the earth, we're going to get to that in a few chapters, when God floods the earth, he preserves... One man and his family. What was his name? Noah. All right? We know that because the Bible tells us, not because there's a blockbuster movie out there that's filled with inconsistencies. But Noah. Noah was from the line of Seth. He was a faithful follower. uh, Second Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness in the midst of much darkness. And so this line of Seth was a godly line. They are... They are calling on the name of the Lord there at the end of chapter 4. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Hey, quick question. Wouldn't you love for that to be said about your descendants? Wouldn't you love to have that godly lineage that could be said of your children and your grandchildren and your grandchildren's children that they called upon the name of the Lord? faithful followers of Christ, light in the midst of great darkness. Now, what's happening here? How do we understand that in the midst of all this darkness and decay, there are these bright lights of, of people worshiping God? Here's how we understand it. God is working out His plan of redemption through provision, preservation, and proclamation. God is working out His plan of redemption through provision, preservation, proclamation. As a matter of fact, the rest of the New Testament is God working out his plan of salvation, his plan of redemption, through provision, preservation, proclamation. Wait, what do you mean by those three words? Well, first of all, provision. In Genesis, we see God moving to provide a Savior. In Genesis 3.15, he said, I'm going to send someone born of a woman that will crush your head, Satan. Remember that? And, And the rest of Genesis is God forming a people that we know as the Jewish people through Abraham, after the flood, and God building this people and growing this people and preserving this people so that one day he could send us a Messiah through this people. And his name is Jesus, right? And so God, with this, with this, this line of, of godly, faithful worshipers, will lead to Noah. Noah will start over after the flood. And eventually we get to Abraham, which leads to the Jews. And through the Jews comes Jesus. And so what God's doing here in the midst of all the decay, all the darkness, is God is working out his plan. He's putting it all together so he can send us a Savior. See, Seth here, the godly line of Seth, is about Seth and his family thousands of years ago, but it's also about us. This is God at work through faithful people to eventually send us a Savior. Isn't that good? It's great news. Provision. God is is providing a Savior. Preservation. Listen to this. The presence of the faithful slows down the decay of society. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? We are to be salt and light. Salt in the first century was a preservative. Still is today. A preservative. And when he says his people are to be salty, saying that we ought to, by our influence, by our impact, by our life, we ought to slow down the decay happening all around us. And yes, things are bad, but aren't you glad in the midst of the darkness of chapter 4, there are some godly folks, right? Calling on the name of the Lord. They're, They're salt. Things were bad. Things were decaying, but not decaying as fast as they could have without the godly line of Seth. And things are decaying all around us. But listen, they're not decaying as fast as they could be decaying because of the presence of the church. Can you imagine what it would be like if there were no Christ followers? 
Can you, can you imagine? If we weren't trying to, you know, do the right thing and obey the, the Bible and follow Jesus and make a difference. No, nobody's perfect, but we're forgiven. And we know that God's got a plan and purpose for our lives. And if we live according to that plan and purpose, our life will, will impact people for good, right? And it slows down the decay of society. The presence of the faithful slows down that decay. So, he, so look, when you read your Bible, okay, I want you just to be on the lookout for that faithful remnant. God always has a faithful remnant. Always. You remember when Elijah was depressed by the brook and he said, I'm the only one here that worships you. And God says, no, no, no. There are 7,000 others, Elijah, that have not bowed the knee to Baal. God always has a faithful remnant that are salt in the midst of decay. And we are called to be his faithful remnant. We are called to be salt. So preservation. The third word is the word proclamation. God never leaves himself without a witness. God never leaves himself without a witness. Noah, from the godly line of Seth, is called a preacher of righteousness. So even in the midst of the of the stark and utter depravity before God flooded the earth. There was somebody preaching. Noah was a witness for God. And God always has a witness. And no no matter how dark things get, God will make sure he always has a witness proclaiming the truth, standing for what's right. We see this in the godly line of Seth. And so I hope you see here what's happening. Yes, sin is infiltrating the world. Sin is is destroying lives, bringing brokenness. But also God is at work to send a Savior and for His people to make a difference in the midst of all of the decay, the development of God's plan. By the way, that's what the Bible's about. First three chapters tell you why we're here, what went wrong. The rest of the Bible is about God's plan to save us. From our sin and transform our lives. And listen, get us back to the tree of life that we lost at Eden. Amen? That's why Jesus died. That's why he rose from the dead. So we could have access to the tree of life in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever.